Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Life After GDPR podcast, where we discuss digital marketing in a post-GDPR world. In today's episode, I interview Jordan Peck. Jordan is a solution architect at Snowplow. This is actually the first time that I decided to talk to a vendor on the podcast. So please share your thoughts with me about how we handled this topic and if it was valuable to you as a listener. I personally like Snowplow a lot. I wish we would do more with it in our day-to-day business. Hopefully we will in the future. I think it's a really powerful platform that has a lot of possibilities, especially if the maturity of the organization moves up a bit. In today's episode, we mainly focus on how Snowplow can help you from a data privacy perspective. Let's assume you are on Google Analytics right now and you're evaluating whether you want to move away from that for obvious reasons and how Snowplow could potentially be a alternative and what features it has. Short disclaimer before we dive in, I am not a lawyer, Jordan is not a lawyer, and nothing that we say on this podcast is legal advice. So without any further ado, let's dive in with Jordan Peck from Snowplow. Jordan, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rick. How you doing? Doing well, doing well. So you work for Snowplow. You guys are uh, the, the first vendor on the Life After GDPR podcast. So let's get that out of the way. I'll take the chance to introduce myself. I'm Jordan, Jordan Peck. I am a strategic solutions architect at Snowplow Analytics, Snowplow IO, as we are now. I have worked for Snowplow for very close to two years now. However, before joining Snowplow team, I was a real life web analyst, did a lot of Google Analytics work, a lot of GTM, BigQuery, all that kind of stuff. Was an analytics consultant for a little while. We were background in digital marketing and digital analytics as well. Was also a Snowplow customer about four or five years ago when I first came across Snowplow and they were significantly smaller than we are now. Really, really loved the product. Thought it was one of the best that, I, that I'd seen in the space. And then when the opportunity came a couple of years ago to come join the team, I was uh, very, very, very ecstatic to get the chance to join. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, so uh, we have very, uh, very similar backgrounds. It's also why uh, why I invited, invited you on the podcast because I know that we we see things in the same way. You know, you know the problems I ran into as a, as a, as a digital analytics consultant with my clients. Before we dive into Snowplow and privacy, which is obviously the angle for for the the podcast, could you give a quick overview for the listeners? What is Snowplow, and perhaps also highlight the difference between the open source part and what you guys are doing, because it is a for-profit business next to it. So Snowplow is at heart a behavioral data platform. It is a system for creating and collecting the best quality behavioral data about your users and your customers across various different platforms. So whether that be web, mobile. IoT, server-side applications, desktop applications, wearables, all that kind of stuff. We have cloud native, so we run on AWS or Google Cloud Platform and load your data in real time into a warehouse of your choice. Supported destinations are BigQuery, Redshift, Snowflake, and Databricks. As you mentioned, the core of our product is open source. All of our code is on GitHub, all of the code for our tracking SDKs, all of the cloud applications that we use to process and enrich validate the data and, and load into the data warehouses is all open source. If you are a technically advanced company with a, a set of smart data engineers, you can take all of our source code and run it all of yourself, all yourself on your own cloud. 
of which several people do. We have a, a very, very large and engaged open source community. And it's hard to track sometimes, but we think it's in the region of several thousand businesses using Snowplow open source. So like Gusto in the UK do, Trello, owned by Atlassian, certainly, certainly used to. I think CNN and the New York Times are, are big open source users as well. But yeah, as you mentioned, I work for Snowplow. We are a for-profit business, so we offer a paid alternative where essentially you come to us and we manage running that Snowplow pipeline for you. So as we mentioned, all of the code is on GitHub, but to use a slightly outdated term, it's a big data platform, right? There's lots of services. I think there's like 40 or 70 services across the two clouds that we build and maintain. It can be a challenge to run that effectively at a high scale and make sure everything continues to work and doesn't fall over. So you can offload that responsibility to us and we will run it for you. However, this is probably going to be quite a key point of our discussion today. As part of our paired service, we are not pure SaaS. What we are called, we, we coin it private SaaS. So the tech is SaaS. We build it, we maintain it. However, we deploy all of our pipeline infrastructure into the customer's cloud accounts. Customer comes along, they open up a brand new empty AWS sub-account or GCP project. We deploy all our infrastructure into that environment and then we remotely monitor it. So we you know, make sure that if your servers need expanding or we will patch updates for you, send new upgrades and things like that and keep the lights on for you. So you offload all of that management of running the pipeline to us, pay us a fee, and you also get people like me to come to tell you how to, how to use it most effectively. We have, a, we have a couple of clients that use this service from you. So basically, they, you could say they, they outsource their data engineering to you guys. Yeah, for, the, for this prospect. And it is also very, very technically sophisticated companies still do this, mainly because they just don't want to have to do it. They've got all of their own systems that they're busy managing and running. And, you know, if they, you can get to an enterprise-grade cloud piece of software that just is managed and run for you and they don't have to worry about it. They just send data to it and consume data out of it. They're very, very happy. It's quite a nice model. It lends itself to a lot of privacy benefits, which we're going to talk about today, this deployment model as well as a lot of other features we've built across the product for this kind of consideration. It's interesting. I, was, I just thought about it. Like it's, it's not real SaaS, like you said. It's a, it's, it's a slightly different model. But from a privacy perspective, it's exactly what you would want because the benefit, of course, being I create my own Google Cloud Platform account or AWS. I own it. I own everything inside it. And I give you guys rights. And if I want to throw you guys out, I can throw you guys out. Still probably have to pay you if I throw you out, but <laughs> but, uh, yeah. you know, but the it's, data is mine, right? That does happen sometimes. We've had customers kick us out and then we go, you're paying a managed service and we're, we're not able to manage it. That does happen from time to time. Thankfully, not as much, I think, as it used to. But yeah, data never leaves your own servers inside your cloud. And we only have access to it to, to, for monitoring. We don't have access to the data to, to, to do anything. It never flows through our servers. So your data that you're collecting on your own users never hits any server or infrastructure that we own. Sometimes we do get access to customers' data, but only with permission and time-bounded permission rights for us to do specific actions. We take it very seriously. We take it extremely seriously because it's very important now more than ever. So let's look at Snowplow through, through my lens, right? So I'm, I'm a consultant helping a lot of companies with Google Tag Manager, Google Analytics. Depending on when this airs, we will know if in how many countries Google Analytics is or is not <laughs> legal, right? But that's an issue, right? So people have this fear 
and they have alternatives. I presented on this this framework, and then you you were there as well, so we had a nice discussion about it at Measure Camp, which is you have like these three options of either you're going to fight it, like you want to stay in the Google ecosystem, and you're going to hire lawyers, and you're going to optimize your implementation, make it as, I don't know, GDPR-proof as possible, I would say. But spark that option, because we're not going to discuss that today, but that's one of them. And then you can you can fly. You, you can either move backwards or, or forwards. And backwards, I would say, is a little bit downgrading to, like let's call them simpler analytic solutions. So there's, there's a bunch of solutions out there. The French DPA listed a, a whole list of solutions that they, they say are GDPR proof. Gentis, Objective, there's a number of them. Fathom, I think, is another one. Yeah, and the Matomo, Piwik, those kind of solutions. And not necessarily saying they're bad, but I, I do think they are either on par with Google Analytics or a little bit subpar, I would normally say. They haven't had the developments a company like Google can allow to put into a product. Exactly. But also, I feel like they are also geared more towards let's call it simple web analytics or, or not necessarily simple, but really geared at web analytics. Whereas the more complex use cases, you often see that the need arises to integrate multiple sources and to create a, a wider thing. And you saw Google Analytics also with GA4 is also moving in that direction with a more the event-based model. And then I feel Snowplow comes into the picture, right? Once you start looking at, okay, I want something more advanced, even before all the privacy stuff, Snowplow usually came on the short list for, for people like, hey, this is something, it's going to take more work to do, but it has some additional value when you look at it like that. And just to put your listeners and viewers' minds at rest, I'm not going to dive into a sales pitch. That's not why I'm here. I would think this, but I think Snowplow is, is, is the most advanced and best product in the market for doing the more advanced analytics from multiple sources in real time, in the most granular detail with the most custom properties and flexible schemas, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if you're interested, Snowball IO, go speak to a salesperson. <laughs> Dan has definitely been the way we've been positioned, certainly since when I was a customer. If you're really, really serious about taking your web analytics as seriously as, seriously as a business takes the rest of its data, data warehousing has been around for like 30 years now. People have been doing data science on business data for a very, very long time in like logistics and supply chain and trading and stuff like that. If you want to take your web analytics as seriously and your marketing analytics as seriously as, as, as that, a tool like Snowblow is one of the best options for it because of the flexibility that you get. It's the trade-off of a lot of things you can customize and, and it is very flexible, but then obviously it's not plug and play. Here's your JavaScript snippet and good luck. You know, like that's the, that's the, that's the trade-off. You, you're going to have to, you, you need a team of people to maintain it. If you're definitely, if you're going to go the open source route. We've, we've made efforts to make Snowplow easier to use, but again, I would certainly send a stoic opinion of Snowplow is that it is more effort, but it's, it will provide more value at the end of it. If you're willing to put that effort in, you need people who can write SQL, you need people who can understand how to derive value and create meaningful data out of a big data warehouse. We are putting efforts in to make it easy to get value quicker, more easy to set up, easier to use for more people, more personas. But in essence, it is a more technical product than install GA and GTM, get some pretty reports in the GA interface. It's, that's, not, that's not the market we're filling. I recorded a podcast with Timo Dechau uh, last week, 
in there, we were also exploring like what type of analytics is valuable. And one of the things we, we figured out, like you have to highlight the core value of data to your company. If you take in a, let's say a travel company and you figure out that the way their search algorithm and like what, what trip to show to the, to the visitor at what moment, based on what you know about the user and their search behavior, that can actually, you know, be a, be a huge improvement on, on conversion rates. And then you realize data is now, it's no, no longer just about calculating, did my Google ad spend? Did my click generate this much money? But it's integral part of your of your business, and there's a lot of business models where that's the case. It's 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 building data products and data apps, and, and even even in the analytics space, like the reporting, you can still think of it as a data product or an application. In that sense, this is my trading reporting data application, or to use your example in terms of real activation, like you know, this is my search product that I am optimizing through the use of data we're, we're, we're observing from our, from our users. Recommendation engines are, a lot of, are, are another popular one that we have a lot of people interested in, which I, which I think is a really, really, having been an analyst for a long time, I think it's really a really nice thing to see in the market that data and analysts aren't cost centers. Like people always think like data is actually just this little bubble, requests come in and PowerPoints come out. <laughs> and that can be a bit demoralizing, really. I did it for a long time. And to see that actually the perspective now is that you can build data products which actually like drive value and increase top line, bottom line, increase, improve customer experience, improve stickiness is a really, really nice thing to see in the industry. Yeah, I think all tools were slowly moving towards that point, but I think Snowplow was really redesigned from the ground up or not redesigned, was invented from the ground up with, with these kind of use cases. If you look at the early presentations of Alex and uh, Yali, I think, their early presentations already, you know, with the old logo, with the, with, <laughs> what the, with with the, the actual, actual snowplow. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love the story. Alex and Yali both used to be consultants, our two co-founders, and they would go into a business and they say, oh, can we have access to your transactional data? And they go, sure, here's the data warehouse. And they'd have all this flexibility to slice and dice and join and manipulate the data as they wished. And then they say, they used to give a DVDs of like exports of the data warehouse so they could do the analysis. I mean, that would fly in a GDPR uh, <laughs> environment, would it? But yeah, and then they say, oh, you've got a really nice website. You've got a lot of users on. Can we, can we analyze that? And they say, oh yeah, sure. Here's a GA login. And it'd be like, oh, it's not quite the sort of experience that we wanted, really. Like, it would be so good to be able to do the same type of analytics we're doing with the other transactional and operational data. We would love to do that with the web data. And they thought, there's got to be a tool for that. There wasn't. That was what stuff I was built for the purpose of. And yeah, those more advanced use cases, those more complex, but ones that ultimately generally drive more value. The, the GDPR perspective and data privacy and security is... So it's also something else we're taking very seriously, but people want to build data apps like we've been discussing while still being GDPR compliant or respecting users' privacy. It, it seems like it might make it more unattainable because it seems like you've got even more things to overcome before you can start doing these things. So we take it very seriously and making sure that you can still use Apple to do those advanced use cases while still respecting users' privacy. So the first obvious thing is what, what we already tackled, right? So the fact that Snowplow will always, either if you guys manage it or if I do it open source, it probably should always be in my ownership. Like technically it 
you know, I could set it up on somebody else's cloud and then put it on my website, but let's assume I don't do such a thing. So that's the first part, right? So the data ownership is always first party. So where the data ends up, BigQuery or Redshift, whatever, but also the collectors, right? You're going to run the whole, the whole pipeline will run on your own cloud infrastructure. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. That's by default, by default, by design. That is by design. Yeah. And you can add in your governance policies, retention policies, cleaning and archiving or moving data for cold storage or deletion. If you know, you would you say, you know, we don't want our logs to contain more than 30 days worth of, of data and we'll, we'll, we'll archive them or delete them after a certain time period. We only want these very, uh, sorry, we only want people to access data with these particular policies. Only these types of people can access this type of data under these types of circumstances. All of that's configurable. We don't enforce any of that. It's entirely up to how you want to control your data and your data access and, and the governance around it. Yeah, it's all it's all possible. I, I would say it, it might be interesting for you guys to have a to create a GDPR best practice implementation way for Snowplow, where you basically suggest if you want to take privacy as serious as possible, then you would want to do all these settings in this way. It's difficult, right? I mean, first of all, there's the legal side of that, isn't it? We don't ideally want to be told at some point by a customer that says, Snowfall told us to do this. <laughs> and, then, and then we end up on the hook for if they've done something horrendously wrong. There's also considerations, right? For like, if you're saying, we'll, we'll trash all the data that stays in our logs or our streaming platform, we'll trash them after like seven days, which is fine, except there are other implications of doing that, right? I was speaking to a customer yesterday about this. Let's say... One of the things with Snowplow is if, if an event is failed for whatever reason, because it's not the right format or something, we don't like silently drop it. We actually store it in, in cloud storage. Let's say you stick a, a retention policy or a lifecycle policy to delete data after every seven days. Those failed events can be reprocessed. You can essentially correct them and send them back to the pipeline. But if you've only got seven days worth of retention, you've only got seven days to action that. Yeah, you need to be on top of it. Yeah, exactly. So there is a balance. If you really want to be privacy conscious, you delete it every day or every 24 hours or something. But if you do that, then you end up opening yourself up to some of these like data, the gaps in your data because you don't have time to reprocess it. So there is a balance that has to be made there. Yeah, and definitely you, you, you wouldn't want to make a recommendation that this is GDPR compliant, but like you said, you maybe give a recommendation on this is the most, this is the most privacy-friendly way you could configure Snowplow in theory. And this is not legal advice, right? <laughs> that kind of... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm not a lawyer. I find myself saying that a lot these days. <laughs> That's on the data retention policy side. Let, let's talk about the about the data collection. Because if we take Google Analytics again as an example, then all the issues start off with the identifier, the cookie, the whatever, the, the way you're going to stitch it all together. And by default, the framework for well, at least for universe analytics, right? Was was user session page view, and now for GA four, they're still like the the user identifier, still the GA cookie, the client ID, yeah. So how how does this look from a how can or how does this look by default, or how can this look as well from a snowplow point of view? On web, we do sort of cookie identifiers. On mobile, we use device identifiers, a user identifier that's tied to the installation of the app. We do it a slightly different way than Google, so we actually place multiple cookies. We're focusing on web for a second. We place multiple cookies. We place a first-party JavaScript-created cookie, which is very similar to like the FBQ for Facebook or GA client ID. Document.cookie, set a cookie, 
And by default, it will run expires after a year. So that's the sort of like normal out of the box cookie identifier. We also place session ID because we do client side sessionization. There's also the that domain user ID is what we call it. Sorry, the, the that cookie ID is like every other web analytics cookie, like the client ID. It's set in the browser and it's susceptible to ITP for one. So ITP truncating it down to seven days, or if you have the enhanced version on just, just 24 hours, which is a bit problematic. Yeah, so that's the main one. We also can place another cookie, which is actually one set by our pipeline, by set by our server. A very common pattern that Snowflow users and customers do is all of the Snowflow pipeline, you stick tracking.rickjonkers.com. You stick a first-party subdomain in front of it. We probably don't recommend people call it tracking.something, but they, uh, analytics.mysite.com. And then the whole Snowflow pipeline and the collection servers are now behind that domain. So then that server can set a cookie back to the browser. So if I'm on withdrunkers.com and tracking.withdrunkers.com sends a cookie back, then that is also first party. And this is where I don't, I'm not usually familiar with the uh, wording around this, but because this is set by the same domain that you are, that the user's visiting, it is, you know, it's owned infrastructure. It's all first party rather than it being set by google-analytics.com rather than been sent back by a third party like Facebook or something. I know that this is very popular as well with GTM server side. So people are trying to set their GTM server behind one of their own domains as well. And I know that people are essentially trying to use it for exactly this purpose, right? To get around ad blockers and to get around tracking prevention methods from identifying it as, as, as tracking measures. That sounds a lot like the way server-side tag manager right now is being used. Disclaimer, you should, you should not use it, right? Without consent of the user. Yeah, which, right? which I mean, we, we will get into consent management in a, in a little bit, but maybe we can get into it right now. Like, yeah, you can use this. We call it network user ID, basically our server set. Yeah, that will supersede things like ITP. That will probably duck ad blockers and stuff. But just because you can doesn't mean you should. You should still respect users' users' preferences. You should still only place those identifiers when relevant, when the user is happy for you to do so. I know Google have done some work in this space with my consent manager, consent moto. We have even more options and that we allow you to do full cookie-less tracking, should you wish. And again, hashtag I'm not a lawyer, but if you can make the intention that even if the user doesn't grant consent, We'll just track raw events without cookie identifiers. So you can still do like event-based analysis, page view-based analysis, conversion. Did a page view take place on this page? Did a conversion happen? But no, no user identifiers, no cookies, no nothing. And then you might, you might say that that's still legitimate interest in improving your site and improving your experience, but you don't know anything about the user who performed the action. Let's indeed park the, the legal side of this, right? Let's assume that there's a way to, to do this from a legal point of view. So then my data set, there would be a large part of my data set, hopefully, that has a user identifier, right, for the, from the people who consented. And then I can basically plot out how those users went through sessions and also how they had multiple sessions, perhaps, over longer periods of time. But then another part of the data set would not be tied to users, but would simply be tied to what, what would then be the the main aggregation, would it be like on a page level or is that up to you to decide, like up to you to model? 
This is one of the things I often think, and I, I actually mentioned it in my measure camp talk when we were both in, in London a few months ago, like cookie-less tracking sounds great from a privacy perspective, but if you want to do session-based analysis and you don't place a session ID, sorry, right? <laughs> you know, um, and you want to do you need users or new versus returning and you're not placing the user identifier, out of luck. But that isn't to say that the data isn't valuable. Yeah, you can still say most viewed pages. You can still say, like, did this form submission happen? Because you can still track that the form was submitted and maybe some of the values that were put into the form, depending on the, on the use case. You can still see that maybe a purchase was made and what products were in it, et cetera, et cetera. You can still track those as events, but tie in those conversion events or those events to a marketing channel might not be the case. We will still track UTM parameters. So you can still say, you can, you can probably still count up page views by source equals email or something. So you can still do that kind of analysis as well. But this kind of like stitching it together into a coherent user journey, it would not be enabled in this in this fashion. Having said that, so as I say, we, we allow configuration options to do anonymous or cookie-less tracking. There's some nuance into the terminology there, but essentially what we allow you to do is you to actively, as I mentioned, turn off or on usage ID tracking, session ID tracking, even like IP address tracking at the point of collection, actually in the tracking SDK on the website. One quite popular pattern might be land on the website for the first time and I get the consent banner. And I don't grant consent immediately because it's really small or I just, I'm not bothered. I click around, view a couple of pages, generate a few like events, and then I click consent. I click agree. At that point, you then deactivate anonymous tracking and then start placing those user identifiers and session identifiers. And this, in theory, will allow you to actually backstitch, again, assuming that you've figured out to do this in a legal way. So you would have no user identifying track identifiers placed until, but you would have session identifiers in place pre-consent. Then the user grants consent. Then you start placing user identifiers. And then because we load the data into your warehouse, row by row, one row per event, you can theoretically stitch back across those, those events that didn't have a user identifier because the user's now consented. You can use that, use our section ID to stretch that back, which is a very popular pattern. And we provide the tools to do that. Whenever somebody starts working with Google Analytics and then they get a few years of experience and then they, the wish for being able to update the data set, like after it's been collected, that, that trigger is probably what drives most people to look at something like Snowplow at, a, at, a, at one point in time, because that- I can't tell you, and I'm sure all, most of your listeners will be familiar with it, but I cannot tell you the amount of times I've screamed at my computer when I was a GA analyst, like you've sent the wrong data in. Oh no, it's like, it's like this forever now, isn't it? You know, maybe with Google Analytics 4, with, with, you know, with BigQuery uh, on the back of it, you can do a little bit of this, but of course, the, the user interface will still reflect what, whatever you send in. But yeah, especially with use cases like this, you know, identifying a user later on. And then even perhaps more interesting is the, the cross-device journey, right? Where, where eventually you figure out that this is my laptop, this is my smartphone, and this is my tablet, but you don't figure that out at the same time. And maybe I've been already browsing some on my smartphone first, and then on my tablet and then I convert it on the laptop. And then of course the laptop gets all the conversion because the rest never gets tied back to it. That's also one of those use cases where, you know, a tool like Snowplow and being able to backstitch is so valuable. Yeah, user stitching is an extremely popular use case. It's relatively 
classic standard. If you have an authenticated user who signs in and generates a user ID, you can track that as well in Snowplow as well as on the mobile app. So even though there's no such thing as a cookie on an iOS app, if I sign in and say, I am jordan.snowplow.io, and then they do the same on desktop, then I know that these two completely unrelated devices are now actually the same person. So I can do that cross-browse, uh, cross-device activity stitching. On historic data, right? Once people are logged in on all devices to the future data, that's, that's the easy part. Also updating the old data, that's, that's where the interesting stuff is. Yeah. Going back to this consent banner, like I land as an anonymous user on the website. I did not consent yet. At that moment, I have a session ID. And then let's say I don't consent. Session ID gets destroyed. So it will, it's a session cookie. So it's a 30 minute timeout. So if you don't do anything for 30 minutes, it will expire. And then the next time you come back, it will generate a new one. So that does place a cookie because it's the only way it can like keep, keep track of the time. But session cookies are considered obviously different to, to, to user cookies anyway, since it expires after 30 minutes. Yeah, I think it's generally fine. You can even actually configure it down to like actual browser sessions. So if you set the timeout to zero, it will expire as soon as you close the tab. Probably like from a privacy point of view, uh, probably a good option. The more I talk to people who are deep into the whole privacy topic, the more I wonder like, is anything allowed? So even like a session cookie, you know? We're going to park that for this discussion, but I do, I, I like, I like the, the setup where, okay, I, I come in as an anonymous user or a first, first time visitor. I have a session cookie. If then a few clicks in, I do decide to, to accept opt into everything. Then user cookie gets placed. And then later on in the processing of the data, the few hits that I had before consenting get stitched to me. And otherwise, if I don't opt in, it just stays separated. Yeah. And, and as far as a Snowplow user, like an analyst in BigQuery knows, that's just a session. We can count it as a session that you can even fill in. Like, this is the wonder of, this is how wonderful SQL is. You can even like populate like a random value as a user number. So you can still like count distinct users. We even go one stage further. So one of the options that we also have is a consent context where I won't go too much into the context, but the idea here is that you can actually attach to every single event you collect, you can attach the level of consent that was granted. So you then have a column that says you got all your events row by row, and then a column in, in, in your warehouse that says, this event was not consented, this event was not consented, this event was consented to marketing but not advertising, this one was consented to everything. When you actually bundle that in, we call it self-describing data, right? You can actually bundle that in into the event that you send from the browser to your pipeline. So that becomes really easy. So if you're a marketing analyst who wants to, you're a digital ads guy, you do banner ads or something, you want to send an audience up to double click for a customer match, you can consent, you can filter the consent column for just marketing and advertising, generate your segments and export it up to Google Ads, excluding everybody who didn't consent it. I, I do this right now for an implementation where, where we, I think we use CookieBot there, but yeah, well, they all, they all give, you know, the same kind of output, but the, the, the consent management platform basically gives you a couple of values back. What did you consent for? Yes or no. And then we, we pass it along to GA4, not as a custom dimension, but in the BigQuery export. So that also when you get data deletion requests, so we also pass the unique consent string, like from the consent management platform. And then when you get a data deletion request, at least in theory, you could delete it all. Still have to build a mechanism to actually do that. But at least the key is there to actually be able to do it. When this first I kind of kicked up in my face in my career, 
we were using a one trust, so similar consent platform. But it was all that was all the consideration there was use one trust to fire or not fire events as like a blocking method inside GTM, rather than what we've just described, actually bundling in that consent level into the data itself. You know, it's the next logical step. And as we move to more to this sort of space, and we work with a lot of customers all over the world, they're, they're not quite as in America, they're not quite as concerned about this because they haven't had they haven't had to hit them as hard as GDPR has. But Europe, especially, this is a very, very obviously big concern. Some of you really should be considering whichever tool you're doing. Like you're saying with, with Google Analytics, for you, you really should be bundling in the consent. We even give you the option to, let's say you've got multiple versions of your privacy policy or your documents that refers to it. You can even bundle in which version of that document into your tracking. So as you make an update to your privacy policy, you change your tracking. So now we're, version, we're referring to version six, not version five of the privacy policy. So you can actually see audit through history how your users have consented over time and what they've consented to. I think it's a no-brainer that if if you want to continue to collect personal data, then adding if there was a, if there was a form of consent, which I, f- I think there should probably be, if it concerns personal data, then documenting that consent will it will it will also make your life a lot easier if you if you ever need to uh, explain something or audit something. I think people who don't do it today will regret it in some years' time. It will very much bite them in the in the backside. Probably, unfortunately, the people that follow them in that job will regret it. That's likely what's <laughs> going to happen, right? That's, it's likely, uh, that's probably that's probably much fairer, uh, fairer than say, Rick. I guess also on the topic of the people say like, are you GDPR compliant, etc. Like all these tooling that I just talked about, and maybe this goes without saying. If you just abuse it, like people say, like Snowplow is GDPR compliant. Well, if you send unconsented data and all personally identifiable information of our users to Snowplow, just using Snowplow doesn't make you GDPR compliant. Like you can still abuse the tracking policies. You can still not listen to user consents and what users wishes. It shouldn't be here, and I'm certainly not going to be here and tell you listeners that if you sign up to Snowplow, you're going to be GDPR compliant because that's just not true. We offer, we offer a number of ways of dealing with sensitive data or private data that, that users generate. So we've talked a lot so far about actually at the, the tracking side, on the, on the data collection side. We offer a number of tools actually sort of in the middle of the pipeline, like as through the processing over and above what we discussed earlier about it all already being in your own environment. So one of the things that we offer, the big thing that kicked off the GA, was it, who was it first? Was it? France or Austria, I think it was, wasn't it? They were the first one. Yeah, Austria, the first one. It was because GA contained IP address information and it was going off to Google. So one of the things that you can do is at a tracker level, you can block IP addresses ever been stored or collected. I do find it funny talking about IP addresses to certain privacy people because every HTTP request made on the internet has an IP address on it. That's how the internet works. You can't just not collect IP addresses. That's not how it works. But you can disable storing it right in the, in the level of the tracker, which is quite appealing. We also offer a real-time truncation. So if your IP address is 1.2.3.4, you can say, I'll truncate the last octet. So it's 1.2.3.x. So you don't know the user's IP address, but you know a certain user's on the same block, for instance, obviously, you know, on the same subnet. I don't know networking. So you can still like say these groups of users maybe are all in the same office or something. 
you can do that in real time. The other one, which I think is really cool, is we do real-time pseudonymization. So let's say you collect, you sign up, you sign up to a website, and the user ID is an email address, as is common for most places. You can actually hash that value in real time whilst the event has been processed before it lands and is stored at rest. So you can choose anything. I think we support like MD2, MD5, SHA1, all the way up to like SHA526. You can salt it as well. And user ID is an obvious one, but you can do any field, any value that you collect with Snowplow, you can do real-time obfuscation of it. And what's great about that is because, because you hash it, every unique value will still remain unique. So you can still do count the stinks, you can still count up unique users, count up unique account IDs or something, or addresses or something. And if you've got that data in the back end somewhere, like again, we look at email addresses as an example. If you've got the user's email addresses in the back end system that you want to join with Snowplow, all you have to do is use BigQuery's SHA-256 function, rehash all of your emails from your backend database, and then you can run effective joins and still merge all that data without necessarily ever knowing what the email addresses were, which is very attractive to people who are concerned about holding onto information like that. I think that's attractive, not only from the privacy point of view, but also the security point of view. You follow security Twitter, which is always fascinating to me. You know, you can follow all these hackers while they're live reporting on what they find. Anyone isn't following malware tech on Twitter, go find him. He's fantastic. He's the guy who found the uh, ransomware that hit the NHS and deactivated it for a while. He's great. Edwards is also uh, a uh, yeah researcher on that topic. They publish great content, but if you follow them, then you become aware of how many things get hacked. Companies obviously don't want this stuff to get out, so they try to downplay it as much as possible, but it's probably best to operate from the assumption that you will get hacked eventually. So all the hashing of anything you can do is probably, you know, you probably want to go down that route. Everyone, uh, one of the sayings I heard from a technology person speaking once was like, build things like you're being attacked because you will be. You cannot assume that no one is going to try and get into your data because they will be. Even if you think no one's going to be interested in our web behavioral data in our BigQuery, don't want to sound offensive, but like, it's pretty naive and pretty a poor approach, a poor way to think about it. You always have to assume the worst and code for the worst. And hashing is the most is the de facto way nowadays. SHA two five six, don't do anything less. Don't do SHA one two eight. Definitely don't do SHA one two five six or five twelve. SHA five twelve. Sorry, definitely is the is is the way to go. And anything that you think might be sensitive data, really. I also used to think for a lot of my clients, oh, like there's no value in this data set, perhaps to their direct competitors. But then. Once I started following this Zach Edwards that I just told you about, he is basically exposing like ad fraud online and how they are basically using all those identifiers to mimic real hits. So there, there's value to all data sets. You, we just don't realize it like for, for what kind of nefarious use they're going to they're gonna take it. Your, one of your first questions was about like user identifiers in the browser and cookie values. You can hash them using the same mechanism. So you can use the same... PII, pseudonymization enrichment. We actually do this on our own site if you want to go, well, you want to say, but all of the cookie values, which are like normally UUIDs, and they're obviously stored in the browser. When we collect them, we hash them with SHA-256 with a salt. So like to us, it's just a random string. We don't, as an analyst, we don't really care. Say so you can still do count stakes, you can do, still do session stitching. But I'm looking at a completely different user ID value, cookie ID value, then what actually is stored in the user's browser. So I can't even theoretically find out what the user's cookie ID is. Now that all 
almost all browsers have locked down the 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 ways of third-party scripts and what they can do. But before, what they would basically do is those share buttons that everybody included on their on their website. They would just harvest everything they could find and then just map out how you would browse the web. Like those were the real privacy infringing uh, techniques, and that that could have been stopped by these kind of these kind of techniques. Cookie stealing is still a valid attack on the on web browsers. Slightly less now because it requires cross-site scripting. And most people are a bit aware of it, but essentially, if you can remotely execute some JavaScript on a user's browser, back their cookie, you can impersonate them, and you can pretend to be them when you go try to log into their Amazon. So we're going to be taking a bit of a tangent, but I find, I find this stuff really interesting as well. People who listen to the podcast probably also do. Like, we're the audience, right? So this, <laughs> this is good. If I distill all of this, like, basically more options and more flexibility, and also, like, you guys developed... Most of it, right? I think it's open source, so probably there's also contributions for other from others. But I think the Snowplow core team is definitely doing the bulk of it. I would say. Yeah, we do. We we, we get contributions back every so often. It de- it depends on the piece of tech, right? The Scala tracking SDK doesn't get a lot of contributions outside the core team because not many people are doing tracking in Scala or or something. But the JavaScript tracker, the iOS and Android tracker, we get quite a lot of contributions. We had a contribution from a customer last week on one of our dbt models that's really cool but it, yeah to answer your question is mainly that mainly our core engineers yeah so the value is there there is already you know it's not like building from scratch which would be like the most extreme alternative right this is like i feel like in between off the shelf SaaS, right google analytics snippet throw it on and then build it yourself is on the other end of the spectrum and snowplow is right in between there we get we get quite a few prospects every now and then who have come from a world where they have done that. They've built their own. They've gone, we're a big company. We've got a big set of engineers and SREs. We reckon we can do this ourselves. How hard can it be? I would potentially argue, in fact, I would certainly argue that, first of all, we're better at it because we've been doing it for so We've been doing this specific, build a product to do this specific type of thing for 10 years now. We've been around for 10 years now. Yeah, I'm sure you've got really good engineers and SREs and developers, but like they have, they've been building your products, they've been building your things. Why on earth do you think they would be as good as we would be? Which might sound a bit like arrogant, but I don't, I don't think it's a, an unreasonable thing to say. But I would also potentially argue that if you have rolled it yourself, all of these things, I actually mentioned this in my Michigan talk as well, there's probably loads of things that you haven't even thought of that will only be, become apparent to you when you start building it. And privacy and security are one two big things in what you'll have to consider when you're building your own tooling. Data access, like persistence, retention policies, access rights, what values are you storing, what's the entropy of those values, likelihood of you being unique, likelihood of them being tracked back to what the users were. Like that's so much stuff and that's not even really considering actually building the core functionality, right? That's not even thinking about how you actually track page views or link clicks or conversions, right? And how you manage it and stuff. So I would potentially argue that even if you do go over end of that spectrum and build it yourself, you're still potentially liable. Maybe I shouldn't use the word liable. You're still potentially running the risk of not building it in a privacy-centric or a secure way. Whereas obviously we've taken a lot of time and a lot of effort to build in these features to, to, to give users these functionality. You told the story of Alex and Yali thinking of, we should build this ourselves. The first thing I thought was, well, 
they probably thought that and then they figured out oh shit this is this is quite a bit harder than we than we thought <laughs> i i know yeah i actually had to i actually for something we're doing eternally i had to go back to the very first github commit on github.com slash snowplow slash snowplow which is back in 2012 and it's a very different product <laughs> it was extremely basic like it was a javascript tracker a collector application that and then an S3 loader and a Redshift loader. I think that was it, like literally like four components. And now we have like 27 jacking SDKs in 27 different languages, two clouds, four warehouses. It's a really, really big tech estate we have these days. The privacy and the security are, are two things, but then also like just think about having to deal with all these different browsers and different browser versions supporting all that. And then the different, you know, mobile assets. Like it's whenever a company says to me like, yeah, we're, we're going to build our own API, like extracted to get the data out of Facebook and Google and whatever. I'm like, okay, but please, you, I would use Stitch or Fivetran or Supermetrics or whatever, because you don't want to support it. Like, why would you, right? Like, it's probably not going to be worth it. I know. It's, I see that. Uh, I, I I am guilty of doing things like that in the past. I wrote extractors from using R. To, to do stuff like that. We had people in my organization doing the same with Python scripts. And I think that's a very prevalent. I think a lot of people around the world who do that, but just give it to someone who's done this. Yeah, but, and, and, and who will maintain it. You know that when Facebook changes the way the API works, you're going to find out three weeks later and it's already broken for three weeks. That stuff's going to happen. Most of the time it's not worth it. So in that case, I like where Snowplow is positioned like in between of building it all yourself, but also not off the shelf SaaS. It's, it, it, this middle ground, I feel, is a good place to be. Or, And I think it has become a good place to be. Like, I don't think it really, I think Snowplow grew into that role, so to say. Mm. I think, yeah, I think so. I think like one of our positioning messages is that like, you get a tool built by the engineers of the quality of the Netflix and the Amazons of the world who have built all of this, the Spotify's of the world who built all of this stuff themselves because they have an army of developers who they can dedicate to this particular task. Most organizations can't dedicate that kind of resource. They don't have the money, the people in place, organization size, time, priorities. They can't do that themselves. They can come to us and get a product of that scale and, and complexity and, and, and flexibility, but still run it in their own cloud, right? Still have integrate with their own applications and, and build their own recommendation engines and build their own personalization decisioning engines and stuff like that. There's lots of companies who want to do those things and don't have the engineering capabilities to know even where to start. We can help them get to that point without not having to worry about maintenance and getting up in the middle of the night and the weekend when your server's falling over, having SREs, expensive SREs, having to monitor it, monitor it 24-7, like we can take that away from them, then we, we, we think we add a lot of value. Well that, well, that ties in nicely to what I want to ask you. Let's say people listening to this podcast, they have an affinity with digital marketing, digital analytics, and they're interested in this, this privacy topic and how it's affecting them. So now they're considering Snowplow, right? After, after this raging review by you and me. They have two options, right? They, can, they have the open source option or get it via you guys uh, and have you guys uh, run it for them. So let's take that last option first, because I think that's the easiest. It will cost them money to hire you guys. What would they need on their end? So you guys run the stack for them, right? So you take that out of their hands. What would you recommend like from a, like the, the marketing manager or the CMO listening to this, he's like, okay, maybe I want to go down that route. What kind of people would he need if he goes down that route? 
most of these businesses will have that good front end resource. We're, we're seeing become more popular to actually build Snowplow tracking into your application, into your website, like into the source code and have front end developers do that. A lot of benefits to that, loads faster, less weight in the, bl- in the browser, nicer developer experience, developer checks and tests, all that kind of stuff. But we can also run in GTM. We published a GTM template, which generates a GUI inside GTM for adding uh, new tags. So if you've already got front-end developers and already got GTM analysts and people who can do that, you can get up and running with Snowplow. Like, that shouldn't be a blocker. Most companies have that kind of like well-covered at this point. What I would say, as I think is, from my experience, the gap that I see the most in organizations that maybe prevents Snowplow from being a fantastic fit for them right now is on the opposite end of the diag- or opposite end of the pipeline is the consuming the data in BigQuery. I will actually hat tip my, give a hat tip to Google here. Giving BigQuery export out for free with GA4 is a wonderful thing. I know it's not free and it, well, it is free to a limit, but the idea that they've put event-level data in the hands of more people so more people are getting used to writing queries in BigQuery and using BI tools like Looker and, and generating cool data models in, in, in a data warehouse with web and behavioral data and mobile data is fantastic. Welcome, Google. I think it's a really, really good move. It is growing in that space. People, maybe like ourselves, who are from digital marketing, digital analytics backgrounds, wouldn't have had those skills and don't have those skills if, if that hasn't happened. So that is a space that you do need people. You need people who are comfortable writing SQL. There's a tool, most of you you've probably heard of called DBT, which we leverage quite a lot to make writing SQL data models, converting the event by event data in a very, very deep, very, very wide table into a set of more easy to understand, easy to consume tables that are easier for an analyst to look at and an easier for an analyst to query and easier for your tools to consume because you don't want Tableau having to run very, very complicated table calculations or, or, or whatever to calculate something very straightforward. You wanted to query a very nice, sanitized, clean, aggregated table. The role, the titles of these people is now basically been settled on as an analytics engineer. The idea of someone who can sit and write production grade SQL uh, against a, a raw data set to convert them into, into more simple to use tables. That is a it's a borderline mandatory, I would say, because that's the main way that we deliver data. We think we deliver the best quality data to the data warehouse from behavioral applications, but it isn't usable, isn't always usable straight out of the box. It depends on your use case. And we do have DBT models that do a lot of this for you. But yeah, if you want to be able to go, okay, we've just launched a new feature on our website. We want a funnel chart to show usage of that new feature over time, sliceable by device and by customer type. Well, someone's going to have to turn that event data into something that Tableau or Looker or Holistics or Power BI or whatever tool you're using, Data Studio, whatever, can consume. Yeah, that's probably the biggest thing that you'd want to look for. And then there's other, and then there's other things like being able to translate business requirements into tracking designs. We have this idea of custom schemas where we have custom events and custom entities deciding what you decide what a user looks like, you decide what a product looks like, you decide what's a bit, an organization looks like you decide what a uh, listing, whatever these things are on your website or your apps, you decide what they are, you decide what all the properties and how they should look, and then translate that into actual tracking code. And then that's what will land in your warehouse. So there's like linking up business data strategists, those kinds of people who are business analysts converting or translating business requirements into Snowplow entities, Snowplow con- uh, uh, custom schemas and concepts that can then be translated into tracking code, 
which can then be translated into a data model in the warehouse. But the main technical role is that analytics engineer, is our SQL engineer working in the warehouse. And then obviously, I, I didn't touch on it as much because it's more in place in more places as I've seen. But yeah, the front-end people, people who can implement good quality tracking code in your website or your applications. I just realized this. We didn't mention this, but people were not really aware of Snowplow. Like Snowplow, you, you don't get a graphical user interface, right? So you need to choose your tool of choice, how you want to visualize on top of it. That's important. Like if, if you compare it to, to Google Analytics, you get the data model, you get everything that's under the hood, but you don't get, you know, you don't get the, the, the graphical user interface. So you, you have a lot of choice there, which is also great, right? And, and you can switch them, right? It doesn't really matter that it's a benefit, but it is something to keep in the back of your head. Sorry, I may have lost out of that, yeah. Looker and Tableau. Looker and Tableau are very, very popular uh, in the space. Power BI, again, very popular. There's some nice upstart holistics. or oh, a nice tool. They're out of somewhere in East Asia, Singapore, I think. They do, they've they got a new, nice new tool that, that's looking really nice. Looker and Tableau. And then, or if you've got a bunch of data scientists, R, uh, Python, get access to that same data. Use ggplot if you use R like I used to. Whatever tool you use. If you go down the route of hiring you guys for the data engineering part, then having an analytics engineer, which is basically going to be in between the people who consume the data, like people who need reports, who need answers, and basically handling that raw data set that Snowplow will, will deliver and modeling on top of that and making sure that in the end they get something in a graphical user interface of choice that they can interpret and make a decision upon. So that's, a, that's an essential person to have in the organization. Exactly. You can't expect a product manager or a marketing analyst to know, to know SQL to a high level. It's just not realistic. I, I think every analyst, everyone who's got analysts in their job title should know how to write some SQL. It's not the case. It makes sense, right? They're not here to write code. They're here to figure out what, what best to do for their next marketing campaign or best to what, what next decision they want to make on this feature that they just launched. Like they, don't, they shouldn't have to be able to write SQL necessarily to get those answers. So having somebody who can serve those answers to them is, is very important. Okay, and let's say, let's say we go down the open source route. I don't want to hire you guys, but I do want to use your uh, cool open source product. I still would need the analytics engineer, right? Because the, the end result will be, will be the same. What, what, would be the extra, what would be the extra people I would need to set this up? like bare minimum kind of setup? So you would need some SREs. So for everyone who's not familiar, SREs are site reliability engineers or DevOps engineers uh, or cloud ops or cloud engineers, essentially. Snowflow is made up of multiple components. We have a collector, we have a validator, we have an enrichment app, we've got warehouse loaders. Those applications need to run somewhere. So when we deploy Snowflow, we are opinionated about how we deploy it. When we have a view on what type of server it should be running on, how it should be running, how it should be configured. That's just our approach. If you have some, some SREs, you can take our uh, collector application and choose to run it on whatever server you wish. So if you're, if you're using GCP, maybe you'll run it on App Engine, maybe you'll spin up Cloud VM, maybe you'll use managed Kubernetes, which is what we do. Uh, you'll run it there and you'll need SREs who are familiar with Kubernetes or if you're on Amazon, like EC2 or, or, or whatever to be able to set those servers up, install the application, and then all the other applications, network them together properly so they speak to each other and they do the right thing in the right order. A data engineer as well. So the difference I would say between a data engineer and a site reliability engineer, the data engineer builds, in our case anyway, the data engineers build those applications. They build the customer collector, they build the data warehouse loader, and then the SRE 
would look, would uh, configure what that application runs on. So if you're running our tech open source, maybe you want to fork what we've, what we've done because you have some other use cases. Having a data engineer who's familiar with Scala or Java, most of our components are written in Scala, which is very popular in the data engineering space. Having some Scala engineers who can look through our code and make necessary adjustments or forks if they need to or want to probably is also not a bad idea, but definitely DevOps or SREs in terms of setting it up and running it and making sure it keeps running. In that case, you're talking about a team of at least three people, right? Including the analytics engineer, three, likely four. Yeah, I would say so. It depends on your scale. We have customers that send 5 billion events a day to their Snapchat pipeline, and that pipeline is significantly bigger than someone who sends hundreds of millions a month and also more expensive, but also like potentially more business critical, right? Which means it needs to be up all the time. Now we manage their pipeline for us, but the, the, the bigger the scale, the more volume that you're plowing through your pipeline, you need more servers to cope with it. You need to network together more physical bits, physical machinery to keep them running all the time. So I don't think it's quite linear, but as your volume goes up, you will start to need more and more people to manage it. Which makes sense. Yeah, and, and, and as the business criticality increases because some people, Snowplow goes down for a few hours, like, that's fine. Like, they're doing daily reports. That's fine, right? We can, we can wait for it to come back up online, rebatch everything, and then we're up and going. Some businesses can't afford. Some businesses use Snowplow as, like, to power their own product and monetize the data they come out of Snowplow, and they can't afford any downtime. So as the criticality goes up, probably the more people you'll want to dedicate to that. I especially wanted to get your insights on like the entry levels, right? Because then for people, they can imagine like, okay, what, what, are, what are we talking about, right? Like from a budget point of view, okay, you would need this amount of people to, to, to consider that move to see if it makes sense for you. If you're interested in open source, then the route I would recommend is something that we call open source quick start. So we've got AWS quick start and GCP quick start. These are sets of Terraform scripts. So Terraform is uh, infrastructure as code. Essentially what it does is a set of commands that will go off to your AWS account and spin up all of the things for you. You run two commands in a terminal window and you can have a full Snowplow pipeline up and running for you. It will be all the components. It will be all of the applications within the pipeline. So the collector, the malware, enrich, the loader, and the, and, the, and the database for you to query data in. It won't be production scale. It's designed to be quick to spin up. So it's not quite, I wouldn't put like a full production website set of traffic at it, but if you want to get to see what our open source looks like and you want to see what applications run and, 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 and what they're doing and how they work together, I think it's github.com slash snowplow slash quickstart dash examples. We're going to put it in the, in the links. <laughs> yeah, just clone those, clone that repo, choose whether you're on AWS or GCP. You do need access to an environment. You fill in a few variables and values in a couple of the scripts, TF apply, and then wait a few minutes and you've got a Snowplow endpoint to send data to. I've personally done this, mucked around with it a bit. It's a, it's a lot of fun. It's a nice weekend project to explore. I demoed this in my MediaCamp talk in real time in front of everybody over my phone, Wi-Fi, because I couldn't get the building's Wi-Fi to work. While all, and I also had to connect to my company's VPN to get it to work. <laughs> But it still worked and it still spun up in, I think, about four or five minutes. It's quite a nice, fun, fun little thing to have a try. And, and if you are considering Snowplow, either open source or, or, or coming to us to manage it, 
it's a nice way to look under the hood, see what it's doing. You can send data to, I think we spin up a Postgres database. So we'll send data to there. You can run some queries. We load in real time as well. So you can literally like put the tracking on your website in GTM, click a few things and then do select start from events and you get all of the things that you've just triggered. So that's what I put. Yeah, if you want to get a flavor of what it looks like and what it's like to use, that's a really good approach. Yeah, definitely the, the place to start. Okay, last question. Then we're going we're gonna to drop off. How about running all of Snowplow, not on AWS, not on GCP, but on some yet unknown to me EU-based cloud provider? Mm-hmm. Oh, on-premise. No, not necessarily on-prem, but fully EU-based. I don't know if there's a good competitor to AWS and GCP in, in the EU, but let's, let's assume there is. Is that, is that even a possibility? Is it on the roadmap? So it's not really possible right now. The reason for that is we leverage some cloud-specific technology on each AWS and GCP. So on AWS, we leverage Amazon Kinesis for the real-time stream. Same on GCP, we utilize PubSub as our streaming platform. Hypothetical EU-based cloud company doesn't have those services, so we'd have to build our real-time application using whatever the cloud could provide there. However, it is definitely on the roadmap. What, we, what we're trying to do, and I hope I don't get too technical for people, but we're basically trying to take all of these applications that, we, that we've built and essentially make them transportable rather than be tied to AWS services or tied to GCP services, essentially make them a, Docker, a Dockerized container, which you can then run in Kubernetes. And if it's a Dockerized container, you can run it anywhere that you can run Docker, which is basically anywhere. So a hypothetical EU cloud offers you manage Kubernetes or a way of running servers, spin up Docker, install our applications, all the, all the individual applications into Docker containers, and now you can run Snowplow on in theory, any way you wish, you can run it on a separate cloud. You can run it on Azure. You can run it on-prem. A lot of businesses still run a lot of things on-premise. If you want to, you could hypothetically run it there as well. We're unfortunately quite a bit away from that being a reality, simply because we've got such a big tech stack, right? We've got such a, a huge estate and it's, you know, we need to battle test it. We need to make it production ready. However, it's definitely on our roadmap. I'm not going to say roughly when I think it will be because my engineering team will shout at me, but it, it is definitely something that we're working towards. Okay, really cool. Because uh, yeah, that's from the privacy angle, the big fear for me as like the marketing manager of a certain company would be, oh no, I, I now migrated to Snowplow to, to evade away from this, but, but I'm still hosting Snowplow on, on AWS or Google and it's still a US-based company. So, you know, it, it didn't result in any, uh, any positive outcome for me. So... Being able to do it on the EU cloud would be, uh, you know, would be really the best uh, outcome. There's a lot to be said, isn't there? I mean, there was a while, ago, a thing a while ago where people were saying the privacy advocates are coming after the public clouds because Amazon are still an American company. Google are obviously an American company, so even if the servers are on, they're in the EU, then you're still potentially sending data to to these American companies. I think that's slightly over overhyped. I don't think that's likely. You can do things like bring your own key on Amazon and GCP. So even Amazon or Google can't break through your encryption and can't access your data. And also if they did that, then the internet would stop working. <laughs> if you decided that you're not allowed to use Amazon or GCP, then the internet in Europe stops working. It seems like they were gunning for it. So, you know, if, if you could be one step ahead, like I think the the, the solution you just described with uh, everything running uh, via Kubernetes and Docker, like 
like if people want to go the extreme route and they find some 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 cloud host in their own country where they can host it all and, and feel like totally 100% safe about it, I could imagine like if you're going to make this investment, you might want to make take that extra step as well. That's very future proof, right? You could just, like I said, you could just spin up a service and spin up some servers in your office and run it there if you really wanted to. Then you're really not risking anything, but that's a pretty hard line to take, I would say. But yeah, it depends on your appetite for, for risk, I guess. Cool that you guys are at least working on it. I've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, it was a cool talk. Learned a lot. Is there anything else you want to share before we uh, before we drop off? We'll, we'll throw all the links in the in the show notes to everything that you you referenced. But uh, is there anything else you wanna you wanna add? No, 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 nothing much more to add. Just I think you're doing a great job, Rick, and bringing a lot of this to to more mass attention. I think that, as I mentioned earlier, just because you use X tool does not mean you're GDPR compliant. You know, look at the look at the mechanisms that are available to you to make sure you're doing this correctly. We put a lot of effort into uh, options and flexibility to making those things possible. But whatever tool you're using, yeah, make sure that it should be more front of mind than ever. I think it is. I think people are starting to realize that this can't be an afterthought. I think that's a good thing to uh, to close the podcast on. Thank you for joining. No worries. Thanks, Rich. Thanks for having me.